Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, Today I have Christopher Fox. Uh, He goes by Topher. Uh, He's an endocrinologist and a diabetes and obesity specialist uh, located in Superior, Colorado. So we're going to talk about his work. Uh, So Topher, thanks for coming. Hey, Richard, I appreciate the opportunity and I'm grateful to be here. Yeah, so is all your work uh, clinical or do you do some research as well? You know, I am basically 100% clinical these days. I did research in my my former career when I was training, but since 2003, when I moved to Colorado with my wife, I've been 100% in clinical practice. And so the the research that I do, if you can put that in quotes, is all around helping people get results and the best way to do that. Yeah. What are the, the most prevalent conditions that people present to you with that you help them on? You know, as an endocrinologist, I see a wide range of problems, and I have spent a lot of my career focused on thyroid issues, underactive thyroid, thyroid nodules, thyroid cancer. But really starting about five years ago, I developed a passion for people with what I'll call metabolic illness, which is going to be diabetes, specifically type 2 diabetes, prediabetes, and overweight. And yeah, I think this is a, a community that really is underserved and, and needs a lot of help. And so I spend most of my waking hours thinking about those types of problems. So yeah, let's let's talk, I guess, first we'll talk about thyroid. So do you deal with people that have uh, thyroid cancer and then hyper or hypothyroid? And like, what are some of the, the commonalities you see? Yeah, you know, I think for thyroid, you can, in a very broad strokes, think about thyroid issues as functional. So the gland is either overproducing or underproducing hormones. So that'll be hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism. And then we can think about structural issues, which are going to be thyroid nodules, a very common problem, basically a lump growing in the thyroid gland. And the reason that we pay attention to those mainly is a small percentage of those turn out to be cancerous. And over the years, I've really enjoyed working with the thyroid cancer community. It's a, a condition that, you know, fortunately has very effective treatments. And the vast majority of people who are diagnosed with with thyroid cancer can be effectively treated and cured. So we deal with all types of thyroid issues. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, are there any particular ones that uh, just, I don't know, are very difficult to treat? And do they happen in more men versus women? Like what are some of the skews in terms of thyroid activity and cancer? You know, when we look at thyroid in general, probably the, I think the condition that frustrates people the most would be hypothyroidism. It's the most common of, of all those issues that we, that we talked about. And there, you know, there are some folks who are diagnosed with underactive thyroid that go on thyroid hormone therapy and that really solves their issues and they, they feel great and they have a normal productive life. But there's a large subset of people who, despite what we would consider proper, proper medical therapy, end up with lingering symptoms. You know, So it's the, the frustration where folks go to their doctor and their doctor tells them their numbers are normal. And those folks feel 
Like, how can I be normal? I, I don't feel normal. And we spend a lot of time trying to, to work through different possibilities, different ways to give thyroid hormone or addressing different a- aspects of lifestyle to try to help those folks alleviate their symptoms. And both hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism are quite a bit more common in women than in men. So that population is largely skewed toward women. Once we get into to thyroid nodules and thyroid cancer, you know, the, the nodules are more common in women. Thyroid cancer, I believe, is still slightly more common in women, but then the balance starts to bow out there. So for people that have um, low thyroid activity, from what I've heard, a lot of doctors tell them, oh, you're fine. Again, your numbers are fine and et cetera. So what, what do you do that's different? If someone comes in and, you know, their T4 looks okay, do you do more tests, look at like T3 reverse, T3, et cetera? You know, what kind of things will you do for someone that appears to be hypothyroid, but uh, maybe some of the numbers don't show it? Sure. You know, when we think about that group, you know, so taking a step back, we know the thyroid gland produces two hormones. So they're called T4 and T3. And the four and the three are just the number of iodine molecules that are attached to this particular particular molecule of thyroid hormone. And uh, the thyroid gland, when it's working, produces mainly T4, about 95% T4. And then either in the thyroid gland itself or in the blood or in any of the tissue. So if we think about brain tissue or heart tissue or muscle tissue, all of these places, T4 can be converted into T3. And we think of we think of T3 as the active hormone. We think of T3 as the active hormone. The standard way to give thyroid hormone has always been, you know, it's been recommended to give just T4 so people would be familiar with brands like Synthroid or Unithroid or Levoxyl or the generic levothyroxine. And like I say, when we, when we take everybody who's hypothyroid, you know, looking across all the spectrum, I would say for about 80% of people just taking levothyroxine, they feel well. And that alleviates their symptoms. But there's about 20% of people who don't feel well on that particular cocktail, if we can call it a cocktail of one ingredient. There was a a study that was originally published way back 1999. So I, I feel old when I start talking about it now, but over 20 years ago, where researchers said, you know, the thyroid gland, when it was working, made about 5% T3. We wonder if that's important. And they actually did a study, very nice design, where they gave people either T4 by itself or a combination of T4 plus T3. And they found that people felt better. They were more energetic. They were less depressed. They were cognitively sharper when they were on that combination of hormones. Now, that study has been repeated more than, I think, more than 15 times now. It's probably more than 20 times. And on balance, those original results were never, they were never duplicated. So I couldn't tell you that that combination is better. I don't think we could say that it's worse either. And interestingly, in a lot of those studies, researchers did something interesting. So these studies were generally done with what's called a crossover design, where say for three months, people were on just T4. And then for another three months, they were on a little bit less T4, but combined with T3. And they didn't know which was which. Researchers didn't know which was which. And, you know, at the end of the study, people will be asked, hey, did you like the first one better or the second one better? And there does seem to be a subset of people who respond favorably to that T4, T3 combination. So very long-winded answer to your question. I'm apologizing for that. But if we go back and say, well, what can we do? So a very simple thing. And I don't know why, but none of the major endocrine organizations recommend as routine therapy, a trial of T4 plus T3 therapy, but that's one very simple. We also look for other reasons. So thyroid symptoms tend to be what are called nonspecific. You know, if your thyroid is off, you might feel tired or cold, or maybe you can't concentrate, or maybe you're depressed, maybe you're gaining weight. 
those symptoms can come for lots of different reasons. And so we try to look at the person as a whole person and see if there's something else that could be being missed, whether it's another medical diagnosis like iron deficiency, or perhaps women going through the menopausal transition or having symptoms related to that would be fairly common. We also look at at lifestyle quite a bit, nutrition, exercise, sleep, stress management, to see if there are obvious holes that are are being missed in those areas. Well, with the uh, T4 only versus T4, T3 combo, from what I understand, uh, I guess the liver and then our gut also help the conversion of T4 to T3 in our body. So maybe those people have a uh, conversion problem, T4 to T3, and that's why they don't feel so well. Like what's, what's been hypothesized as to why some people do well just on, let's say, Synthroid T4 and some people need like, you know, Cytomel or other combinations? Right. So, you know, I think the short answer is we don't really know for sure. There are specific enzymes called deiodinases, which take that T4 molecule and turn it into T3, or there's different deiodinases that deactivate T4 and turn it into reverse T3. You mentioned that earlier. And it's been hypothesized that perhaps there are genetic differences in these enzymes that might account for why some people do better with T3 and some people don't. So far, the ability to predict who responds favorably to T3 has been rather disappointing. There's not a test that we can necessarily do that tells us, hey, this person really needs to be on T3 and this person's going to be fine just on T4 by itself. And so we end up in the clinic doing a lot of what we call N of 1 trials. So if you came to me and you said, gosh, my doc tells me my numbers are normal, I'm just on T4, we would you know, try putting you on the combination and then ask you, hey, do you, do you notice anything getting better? Do you like this better? And, you know, if you do, then we can potentially play around with different T4 to T3 ratios, but it's very hard to look at blood tests and be able to know who's going to respond. You know, one of the things that I think comes up in endocrinology a lot is when we think about blood tests, it's very natural to assume that when we get a blood test result, that that tells us the truth, that we know, gosh, this tells us exactly what's going on inside a person. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. And long ago in my training, there was a doctor, Dr. Spencer. I don't know if she's still practicing. She was at USC, but she, she taught me that, that tests are really an estimate of truth. And the problem with with any test is that it's subject to a lot of different factors that may influence what that number, how that number is reported and how well it reflects the actual physiology inside of somebody. So I think, you know, one of the traps that that Western docs get pulled into is to rely 100% on the test results and not to, you know, not to actually talk to the person and try to put those two things together and think creatively about, hey, what might be going on and what might this this person in their unique circumstance, what might they need? I guess that's why you have, you know, probably somewhat commonly, someone's numbers look okay on labs, but they just don't feel right. 
And if you just let it go at the labs and say they look fine to me, then you're going to miss out, you know, some of the nuance and the uniqueness of them that is giving them an issue. Yeah, it's obviously very disappointing, right? When somebody, when you go to your doctor and you say, I don't feel well, and your doctor says, well, you know, I ran your tests and your tests are fine. You know, that that's only really half an answer. I think people do best. And usually, you know, I guess what I encourage everybody is to find a, a doctor, a provider, somebody who can take the time to listen to you and really get to know you and who you trust, who can provide good advice and can try to essentially do life with you to try to understand what's going on and, you know, try new things. And if something doesn't work, then go back to the drawing board and try what the next thing might be. So why is it hard to uh, establish whether someone should do well on a T4, T3 combo versus T4? Like, even if you do it after the fact, why isn't that a standard protocol? Give them both instead of just T4 and see how they feel. And then, you know, switch them to one or the other, depending on how they feel. Like, why is there not, it doesn't seem to be much switching going on. It's like, you're given this and that's it. I don't know why that's not done more frequently. I think that most people who spend a lot of time in thyroid, most thyroid experts use T4, T3 combinations as part of their practice. Like I say, the the standards response from scientific organizations like American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists or American Thyroid Association has always been, you know, this hasn't been proven to be better. So we're just going to stick with the the old fashioned. You know, I, I know you have a scientific background. I listened to a few of your of your podcasts. And it's interesting to me when we, uh, you know, if you were to look at, at a study and a response, you know, typically the, the, the response will be marked as the average or the average with a standard deviation or a standard error of the mean. But there's usually a whole bunch of dots on that, right? Where there's a lot of dots that are up top and a lot of dots, you know, these people got better, some got way better, some got a little bit worse, a few got a, got way worse. And, you know, I think that medicine would really do well to find, you know, to be able to spend more time trying to figure out, well, how come this dot is way up high and this dot is way down low? And how can we know this in advance? Who's going to respond? You know, I think when it comes to testing for thyroid, so your specific question, the problem that we is that we what we care about is the T3 level that's actually in the tissue. We care about how much T3 is available to the heart or to the muscle or the brain. And we don't have a way to access that directly. So we're forced to measure T4 or T3 levels in the blood or TSH levels in the blood. And like I say, all of these provide an estimate of truth for what that T3 level actually is in the tissue. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. I have uh, I had thyroid cancer. Hopefully don't have, but had. Mm. So I take like Synthroid and uh, I've been, you know, I, I haven't wanted to change anything else because it works. It seems to be okay. So I don't want to mess with it. So maybe from the patient side too, that happens as well. Is, uh, once they're on something and it works, they're like, leave me alone. I don't want to change anything. Well, and I, I think that's like exactly right. I, I, I didn't know that about you, but... As I mentioned, for about 80% of people, the T4 by itself seems to work great. So if you have the results that you want, you're on Synthroid and you, your your numbers are where your doc says they're supposed to be and you feel well, then I don't think there's any reason that you need to experiment with T3. We know that the studies, again, show these to be roughly equivalent. So I think that's a it's a perfect therapy for you. So uh, let's go for a minute over to the uh, the diabetes side. What um what does your clinical practice look like there? Like what kind of uh, people do you get in, and you know what are their complaints or symptoms? Like what happens? Sure. So as an endocrinologist, again, I see all types of of endocrine problems, and so that includes both type one diabetes. We were introduced by Amber Kluwer, who was on your podcast a, a few weeks ago, and she spoke quite a bit about mm. type one diabetes and her experience. 
we tend to see a large number of folks with type 2 diabetes or prediabetes just because those are much, much, much more common in this day and age. And, you know, as I mentioned at the, the outset, that's a group that I feel has maybe been underserved by, by our healthcare system for a, for a number of different reasons. But we know that the, the incidence, the prevalence of type 2 diabetes, the number of people who have type 2 diabetes and the number of people who have prediabetes just continues to grow and grow and grow. And, you know, honestly, for me, I think that's a statement about the world that we live in and how, you know, honestly, it's become harder to make healthy choices in the world that we, that we live in. And these are conditions that we know respond very favorably and in a powerful way to, to healthy lifestyle changes. Choosing foods that allow you to have good nutrition, getting proper movement or exercise, and getting quality sleep, we know do wonders to be able to normalize blood sugar. People can reverse type 2 diabetes or uh, reverse prediabetes or prevent type 2 diabetes if you have prediabetes. But there's a large gap, I think, between people knowing what to do, right? I, I would say that probably 80% of people that I see have a general idea about what the right thing that they should be doing, what their lifestyle is. But there's a big gap between knowing what the right thing to do is and then being able to do that consistently. You know, it's not uncommon when I I ask people about exercise in clinic that I'll get a response, you know, hey, how much are you exercising, Mrs. Smith? Oh, doc, not as much as I should, you know, not as much as I should. And like I say, starting about five years ago, I just really got curious about that particular answer. How is it that we, you know, in our lives, and I think this is true for everybody, it shows up in different places in our life, but how is it that we know what the right thing to do is yet we have such a difficult time doing that consistently. And so I've just become fascinated. That's the question that I spend the most amount of my time, the most amount of my brain power on is trying to understand how is it that we actually make decisions and yeah, how can we help people to actually get results by doing the things that we kind of all in our gut know we're supposed to do. Does that make sense? I think that the advice is generic you know, eat better and exercise. Sometimes it's specific, but even then it doesn't mean it's, it's easy to do or approachable. You know, like I, I, you know, I'm, I'm heavy myself. I've been heavy for a long time. I don't have diabetes yet, but you know, I'm working to make sure I don't have it. But you know, when you're overweight, you feel like you did something wrong or you're a bad person or a weak person. And if you get diagnosed with diabetes, I would bet that people feel like, well, now I have this condition and people are going to think like I caused it myself. And they're probably beating themselves up over it. So all that mental type stuff and willpower, et cetera, like you have to eat better and exercise. And, you know, it's not easy. I think it all boils in and makes it, uh, even though the advice makes sense and people say, okay, you know, that's what I should do. It's not so easy to do it. You know, I, uh, I, I'd love to be able to respond to that. I think that that feeling that you identified, you know, this, this must be my fault or, you know, I'm so frustrated because I've tried lots of things and perhaps on social media, I see other people who are having these incredible results with this program or that program. And, you know, I've tried all the programs and they don't seem to be working for me. There must be something wrong with me. And there's feelings of frustration and guilt and shame that, that come out of that. And, you know, I, I think about this thing that I'll call the knowledge willpower trap, which is that the standard way that 
the healthcare system teaches us, or even that we just learn in life is, you know, just teach me the right thing to do. And then I will simply choose to do that. So give me this program, whether I'm going to go on a whole food plant-based diet or a Mediterranean diet or a ketogenic diet or a paleo diet, I'm just going to, you know, show me how to do this. And then I will just choose to do that every day. And the problem comes up is that we know that what we could call willpower or motivation is is a limited resource. It runs out for everybody. Some people might have a little bit more. Some people have a little bit less. We can do things to to improve our motivation or willpower. But but in general, willpower always falls short. You know, I like to think about, well, if we take a step back, we have training programs for people with prediabetes that we that we walk people through. And we can get more into that if you have interest. But we teach from this thing called the Be the Hero Framework. And the basic idea would go like this. You know, we all want good health so that we can basically be the heroes in our own life. When we, when we have good health, we can focus on our family, our friends, our business career, whatever it is that's important. And when we lose good health, it makes us turn inward and it keeps us from being able to be that, to be the hero. And in order to, to be the hero, I like to think that you need to do three things. So number one is you have to picture the hero. So you have to be able to answer that question. Why is it that you want good health? What will having good health allow you to do? We know from studies that people who are connected to a sense of purpose actually live longer and healthier. And so we want to be able to connect to that purpose. And we want to have a way to keep that in the forefront of the mind. And there's some skills and practices that people can use to be able to keep that in the forefront of the mind. So it's not getting swept away by the, by the busyness of life. Second thing is if you want to be the hero, you have to train the body. And we know that the hero's body, it thrives on proper nutrition and movement and sleep. And, you know, contrary to what the internet wants us to believe, the principles of good nutrition or exercise or sleep, they're pretty straightforward and they're easy to learn. And then the third thing is if you want to be the hero, you have to fight the dragon. And like this two-headed monster, our, our own culture and our own psychology actually get in our way and attack us each day, knocking us off track and keeping us follow, from following through on our intentions to make those healthy choices, right? People have those intentions. I know I want to do this thing. I'm just not able to do it. Our culture and psychology actually knock us off track every day. And this is where most people fight back using willpower. But, you know, I would say that using willpower to fight that dragon is like using a uh, a squirt gun. It always it always runs out. We need more powerful tools. And so we teach people a series of skills that look at how our identity and our beliefs and our emotions and our environment and our habits and routines and the people that we're around and even our accountability structure or how we assess results and troubleshoot and adapt. All of these things are are basically gameable. There are skills that people can learn to be able to move from gosh, you know, I keep trying something and it might work from th for three weeks or four weeks and then it flames out to, gosh, you know, I can actually make continuous progress and I can get results that are sustainable for me. And I, like I said, I just, I get great joy from taking people, from walking with people on that journey. Well, what have you found that uh, helps people, you know, actually adhere to a treatment plan and help themselves and what, what makes people give up? Yeah, I, I think the giving up piece, if I can tackle that one first, Richard, the giving up piece is it really ties in with that motivation or willpower, because we know that particularly early on in a in a program, right, when you when you start, you know, you go see your doc, you're diagnosed with prediabetes and you think, gosh, I've got to do something. I got to make a change. You do some research and you decide I'm going to do this. There's a lot of excitement that's there. I'm going to change my health. and 
there's a promise of transformation. I'm going to be something different when I go through this process. And so in that moment, motivation is really high. And I think this is why a lot of people can have success losing 10 pounds, 15 pounds, 20 pounds. And what ends up happening though, is people end up hitting this thing that uh, by some authors, it's been called the messy middle. You get about six weeks in, eight weeks in, maybe 12 weeks in, and motivation starts to drop. And so now what was easy to do, you start to have this idea or this concept of, gosh, you know, I just don't know if I can sustain this for my whole life. And we find that people tend to either go out with what we call a flame. You know, basically you throw your hands up and you say, gosh, this is not worth it. I just, I can't do this anymore. And you go back to the old way or people go out with a fizzle. And, you know, I, I've been one, this would be a silly example, but I've never been able to make either journaling or meditation stick for me, two things that I've tried to do, but, you know, you get partway in and you, you've kind of been doing something for a while. And then all of a sudden, one day you kind of stop and you scratch your head and you say, huh, like, I wonder when I stopped doing that. You know, I haven't journaled for a couple of weeks. I don't really even remember choosing to stop. So if we looked at, at practical advice, like I say, there's a, there's a whole host of things. I talked about connecting to, connecting to purpose. We encourage all, uh, all the folks that we work with in our, in our coaching programs to have what we call a morning routine. So it's a series of things that you do in the morning. It only takes about five minutes, kind of reminding yourself why you want good health, sort of what kind of a difference you want to make in the world. But there's this very powerful tool, which is called intention setting. And it's crazy that it works, but studies showed uh, in the, I believe the first example, they were looking at exercise that compared to somebody who is just told that exercise is good, or compared to somebody who's given a pamphlet about exercise being good. If we actually have folks write down in the morning when and where you're going to exercise. So as much deal as possible, I'm going to exercise at this location at this time, maybe with this person that just that simple step of writing it down, studies have shown more than doubles your chance of following through on that good intention. That intention setting might also take an if-then format. So perhaps you know that you know after you talk with your mother-in-law, she tends to push your buttons and you're stressed out. And often that's a time when you end up in the kitchen and you're not able to make healthy food choices like you might be at other times. You know, It might be something that if I talk to my mother-in-law, then I'm going to go for a walk before I go to the kitchen. So either I'm going to do this thing at this time in this location, or I'm going to do the, you know, if this thing happens, I'm going to do this other thing. That would just be one, you know, really easy example of, you know, how to basically close the gap between what we know we're supposed to do and what actually happens at the end of the day. Yeah, it does. It's just, I mean, how often do you see your patients and if they get into these slumps, you know, how do you monitor them closely enough? You know, what if you have thousands of them? How do you monitor these people and see them not, not just when there's an emergency, but shepherd them throughout the whole process. Yeah. So this, this is where, when I mentioned, I think the healthcare system, the, the traditional healthcare system is, is failing people is that that traditional model, you know, Hey, I go see my doc every, say every three months for a checkup. That's a very difficult place, particularly with the time pressures that are placed on folks, the regulations that are placed on on providers in terms of you have to see this many people, you know, you only get seven minutes or 12 minutes or whatever the number is with somebody. I think it's about impossible really to be able to guide somebody to be able to make those changes in that environment. And, 
you know, really where we get the best results these days for, for pre-diabetes. So we have a, a community on Facebook. It's just a free community that people can join uh, a group for people who have pre-diabetes and, you know, there's trainings and ideas and whatnot that are placed in there each day. So somewhere people can come be in a community of people who are, are just like them kind of on this journey to, to prevent diabetes and hopefully reverse pre-diabetes altogether. And really where, where we get the best results. And, you know, I've tried to think creatively about how we could do things differently. The, the best results that we've had are taking people through a 12-week program. It's a coaching program where people are interacting with us really once or twice a week. So there's some group coaching sessions where, where we do training and introduce concepts. And then I have a nurse practitioner, a uh, lovely gal, Sarah, who actually happens to have type 1 diabetes. So she's very familiar with, with the intricacies of thinking about blood sugar. But she meets, meets with folks individually uh, every other week to be able to help people take the high-level concepts and apply them to, to their own lives. You know, I, I read this book a long time ago. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read it, Richard. It's called Change or Die by Alan Deutschman. Have you happened to run across that book? No, it's called Change What? Change or Die. Oh, yeah, really fascinating book. It, it, it kind of changed how I approach medical career in, uh, in a lot of ways. But it, in that book, the author talks about he gives examples from different industries. So he talks about the auto industry, and he talks about people recovering from addiction, but also looks at people recovering from heart attacks. And, you know, the, the traditional medical model, what he describes is built on these three F's called fear, facts and force, you know, so somebody has a heart attack, and you tell them, hey, if you don't change, you're going to they're going to die. And, you know, you kind of really push somebody hard to try to make changes. And basically that model doesn't work is the thesis of the book. And he says that we should replace this with three R's, which are to relate, repeat, and reframe. So they, I think that, you know, really what folks need, so say you have prediabetes, is you, you know, people benefit from having a community or having somebody who can be a coach or a guide or walk, walk alongside to be able to say, Hey, what's working for you? What's not working for you? How can we, you know, how can we tweak things or adjust things? You know, maybe a, an, another example of, of how we help people, Richard, would be to look at how people assess results and troubleshoot and adapt. And I like to think of this very simple process, which is periodically. So we talked about a morning routine, right? Every morning you kind of do this thing, which helps set your intention for the day. Here's what I want to accomplish at the end of the day. That hopefully will set you up to be better success. I also like folks to have something called a, a weekly review. So roughly once a week, spend 15 or 20 minutes and kind of look backward over the week and say, hey, what worked? What didn't work? And it would basically be this question. If you could answer this question, am I getting the results that I want? And obviously you can answer that yes or no, or for most people, it kind of falls. There's some yeses and some no's that are in there. And I think when we answer yes, hey, this thing is working for me, it's really important to notice that for a couple of reasons. So one is humans were wired to notice that things are going wrong. And it's easy to say, hey, this isn't working. And I think that leads a lot of people might have a program that's working, say, 60% well or 80% well, but they're not quite getting you know, that 90 or 100% that they would really like. And it's easy to throw that whole program out. But if we can notice that, hey, this part is working really well, this is working, say, 60% well, we want to notice that and benchmark it, right? We want to be able to come back to that if life throws us a curveball and we get knocked off track. And we also want to celebrate it, right? If we can notice what's right, you know, hey, I used to uh, be standing in front of the pantry every single night. Now I only do that 
once a week or twice a week looking for snacks. Well, that's actually a, a noticeable improvement. Yeah, it's not perfect. We haven't kind of gotten out of the habit of standing in front of the, that pantry door looking for that delicious snack that's in there that's not going to be on our health plan. But going from seven times a week to twice a week is actually a, a huge improvement. Oh, I was just saying definitely. Yeah, go ahead. You want yeah, to notice yeah. what's going right. Yeah, so we want to notice what's going right. And then those parts that aren't going right, right? If we're not getting the results that we want, there's a very simple follow-up question, which is, am I following my plan? And when we talk about willpower or motivation, one of two things will be true. Either I'm not following my plan. So, hey, I plan to exercise every week, uh, sorry, every day, or plan to exercise five times a week, but I only did twice, right? So I'm not following my plan. This is where we've got to go back and look at that fighting the dragon piece. So what is it about my emotions or my habits or my routines or the people I'm hanging out with or my accountability structure, the environment that I'm in? What is it that is knocking me off track and how can I... How can I tweak or change something to make that true? And if you find that you're not getting results, but you are following your plan, then you need a new plan, right? You're, you're again, a scientific guy. I think it's the Einstein quote, or at least it's attributed to Einstein definition of insanity, doing the same thing and expecting different results. If you're not getting results, but you are following your plan, then we got to do something to, to create a new plan, right? We've got to try to shake that system up in some fashion to be able to generate new, and whether that's getting a coach or trying a new app or reading a book or getting a mentor, looking at people who've succeeded on this journey, whatever it is, we've got to do something to be able to, uh, to get a new plan. What percentage of your patients um, improve versus just stay at steady state versus go downhill? I know it's not because of you, but in normal practices, do you know those numbers? And in your practice, have you been able to improve them? And what are they? Yeah, I think that, you know, statistically, we think of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, or prediabetes as being sort of a slowly progressive condition that's very hard to revert. People are told, gosh, when you have type 2 diabetes, that likely you're going to need first lifestyle and then tablets and then eventually insulin therapy. And that it's this slow progression and you can't do much to. And, you know, over the last few years or maybe last decade, there's been a lot of science that's come that has come out that says, gosh, that's that doesn't have to be true. If we look at at prediabetes, you know, I think that the the statistics say, you know, depending on where you are, if you're closer to the normal end of prediabetes versus closer to the the diabetic end of prediabetes, that within five years, about 10 to 50%, uh, five zero, 10 to 50% of people with prediabetes will be diagnosed with type two diabetes. So in, you know, in my clinic, I, I see a wide variety and I, I can't say that I have a scientific answer. What I'll tell you is that, again, the, the greatest joy for me these days is in folks that we work with. And so we work with folks all across the country in our, in our coaching programs. And, you know, I, I think we've seen uh, about half to two thirds have been able to actually reverse prediabetes. So they've gone from, from prediabetic to normal, but, you know, even more encouraging, I, I'm thinking of this, this gal Marie that was with us recently before she came and worked with us. She said, you know, I I've been on every program. I've tried all these things and I just, I felt stuck. I felt like this was, you know, I just want to give up. This is just who I'm, who I'm meant to be. This is, I guess, how it is. And even starting a new program, she said, my family is, you know, they're all just sitting there waiting. Yeah. Okay. Well, when's Marie going to fail on this one? And, you know, at the end of the program, I think 12 weeks, she, without trying very hard, had lost about 15 pounds. But the, the greater, the greater joy is she said, you know, I just, I have hope this isn't taking so much bandwidth. It's not so hard. It's not so much of a fight. I, I know that I can 
sustain this, that I can do this. And so those, like I say, those are not very scientific numbers, but I hope that gives a flavor of the answer to the question, Richard. Well, it's a lot more than I thought. I thought only, uh, you know, a tiny percentage. I, I didn't even think that any doctor would even credit the fact that people could reverse, you know, prediabetes or maybe even diabetes. So the fact that you mentioned it is great. And the fact that you say in some cases, half to two thirds, I mean, have significant benefits. That's huge. Yeah, you um, you know, if you're interested in that, I would encourage you to look at any of the work by a by a doctor named Roy Taylor, who is in the United Kingdom. And he's done a series of studies and he's got some YouTube videos and a, a great website that he pioneered a program for for type two diabetes that went through a series of smaller studies and then a, a study called the direct trial, like a D-I-R-E-C-T direct trial where they showed with a fairly aggressive protocol, they put people with type 2 diabetes on a, a liquid, about 800 calories. And then as these folks lost about 30 pounds, they then taught them how to eat healthy to maintain that weight that they had lost. And they found that about, uh, I'm forgetting the exact numbers, but I think if you lost 20 pounds in his program, there was about a 75% chance of diabetes remission. So you could come off of all medicines and you had normal blood sugar. You weren't in the dietic range for blood sugar. And, and uh, I mean, they, these were specifically people who had been diagnosed within the last five to six years and they weren't yet on insulin. So it was a subset of, of people. But, you know, if we were to look at the physiology of why do people get diabetes or why do people get prediabetes? You know, I, I think that really we could say there, there's two primary insults that happen to somebody's body. Uh, the first one is that there is just chronic overnutrition. So we're, we're taking in more calories than our body knows what to do with. And we all have the ability to store fat in a healthy way, right? Storing fat helps us survive the winter when there's a famine or, you know, when it's 1800 and we live in North Dakota, if we put on 10 or 15 pounds around the harvest, you know, we're more likely to make it till springtime. But problem these days is it's easy to go above what we can safely store in terms of, of putting fat on our body. And that's when we start to see inflammation levels go up. We start to see fat get deposited around our organs, the so-called visceral fat or fat gets deposited in the muscles and muscles become resistant to insulin or in the liver or even in the pancreas. And the body has a really hard time with that. The other insult that comes up is that we become more sedentary and we live in a world that makes it really easy to be sedentary. And we know that when we do that, we lose both muscle mass and we lose quality muscle. And those two things exacerbate those problems of kind of that chronic overnutrition. So all of this just said, I think Dr. Taylor proved really elegantly. And we could say this same thing about the ketogenic diet or paleo diet, or people that lose a lot of weight on whole food plant-based diet, that if we can reverse that, that overnutrition and get below what Dr. Taylor would call the personal fat threshold, that level where you are, are now no longer storing fat in an unhealthy way, then the system can actually regenerate and can start to function in a more normal way. And I, I really think that, you know, for all those who are listening who have type 2 diabetes or have prediabetes, you know, I would just really encourage you to look and find somebody that, you know, is aware of this research. And, you know, if, if you want to be able to, to get off insulin, I don't know if it's possible for you, but certainly it's possible for some. If you want to get off medications, it's almost certainly possible. I think about a gentleman that saw us, Mr. G, I don't know, 
he was probably about five years ago. He was on insulin, three, four shots of insulin and metformin. And he said, you know, I just don't want to live like that. And he was willing to make some pretty aggressive changes. He lost 35 pounds, almost the exact amount that Dr. Taylor talks about. He didn't do it with a liquid diet, but just with a, with a healthy, it would be considered essentially a paleo diet for him. And he was able to come off all of his medicines. He came off insulin first, uh, first his mealtime shots, then his long-acting insulin, and eventually off metformin and had normal blood sugar just by being able to lose and maintain that 35 pounds. It's a very simple concept. It's harder to do, Richard, to be able to lose and maintain. But uh, No, no, it's really easy. (laughs) It's very hard. hard. Can be done. Sorry, I, I get passionate about this, so I get long-winded. So, uh, shoot, let me, uh, let me okay. turn things back over to That's you. That's okay. Do you see people um, plateau at a certain level, even if they're trying hard to, uh, you know, to get themselves in a better way, or, you know, do they plateau at the right point and now they they have smooth sailing from there? You know, now they've lost, let's say, you know, thirty pounds, and yeah, they could lose more, but it's enough. Their levels are better, and they just kind of, you know, keep it at that level. Yeah, so I, I think the plateau is a is a common problem, and you know there's a number of reasons that 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 happens. When we were talking about habits or routines or making changes earlier, you know we talked a little bit about motivation being high at the beginning of a program and gradually decreasing when folks hit this messy middle. That's a very natural thing. Uh, it's a very natural thing that happens, and sometimes the plateau happens simply because you know, it's harder to to maintain that full intensity on the program. If we look at something like weight loss, we know that, you know, there are hormonal changes in ghrelin and leptin and these other hormones that help us regulate weight that do make it so that your body kind of fights against you. And, you know, honestly, if you lose 30 pounds and you're in a smaller body, you end up needing fewer calories than than you did when you started. So without making further changes, sometimes things will will naturally plateau. And we spend a lot of time, you know, looking at, at people who hit that plateau and trying to figure out how to work past, but going back to that idea of benchmarking and noticing what went right. You know, I think that if somebody has been able to lose 30 pounds and they can maintain that weight loss, that is a huge boon for their health. And as goal number one, we want to notice that and celebrate that 30 pound weight loss. And we want to practice skills that are built around persistence which is what are the routines that got you here and how can we make sure that you don't get knocked off track to go back to where you were 30 pounds heavier? Because we know that that's a really common issue for folks is to end up, right? You lose your 30 pounds, you maintain that for a while, and then something happens, you you get shifted over to the night shift or your mom gets sick and you have to do more care or you're traveling more or whatever happens. And now you're back up 30 pounds. We really want to work on that persistence to, to say, well, let's have you practice being healthy and uh, in this new current size body that you have. And then over time, definitely we can look at things and say, what is it that led to this plateau and what steps can we do to move to move beyond? But let's not, let's not lose track of the fact that that, that 30 pounds is a, is a success. And if, if a person can maintain that, it's going to have huge impacts on their health. Well, how, how long have you been a clinician? You said about what, 17 years, I believe? Yeah, so I came out of training in 2003. My wife and I, we were uh, together at the University of Virginia. We moved back to Colorado where our families live. And uh, yeah, uh, she happens to be an oncologist. She and I have been in practice here in Boulder since 2003. Well, what have you noticed? I mean, you know, you haven't been doing it for 30 years, but 17 is pretty good. You know, just about 18. What have you noticed in people? How are they different now versus when you started? 
You know, it's interesting. There's, a, I think, a number of, of different things that, that have happened. I'm trying to think of how is the best way to answer that question. You know, I would say, number one, the, we live in a world that has changed. So our, our food supply has changed, our ability to exercise consistently, or maybe a better way to say that, our ability to move from place to place without having to, uh, to use our own muscles has improved dramatically. We, we live in a world that's so connected. We don't have to prioritize sleep. We can be on all the time. We can be under stress all the time. And so that, that, that world piece is, I think, part of a bigger conversation. You know, when, when I train somebody, you know, either in clinic or in one of our coaching programs, we, uh, I like to think of, you know, the way to fight back is we're kind of building a fortress around that person, particularly in their home environment and maybe their work environment. But there's part of a bigger conversation here, Richard, which is as a society, as a culture, how can we change the world in a way to make it so it's not kind of blowing as a headwind in our faces? How, how can we change the world so it's not making it so hard for us to follow through on our intentions to choose healthy? Um, but I, I think, you know, on the flip side, you know, people by and large, I believe still, you know, I, I think everybody has unique gifts and passions and we're wired, wired to change the world, right? We're wired to, to help the people who are around us, whether it's just caring for our family, you know, moms caring for kids or grandparents caring for, for family or, you know, spouses caring for each other or our group of friends, or maybe it's through business or career trying to do something that makes the world a better place to contribute and to grow. You know, I, I think that people are still passionate about that. And yeah, I just want, you know, I don't want your health to get in the way, right? I want you to be able to keep that good health so you can focus outward and be the hero. And so I think yeah. people still are connected that way. Yeah, I'm sure all those basic human desires and actions are the same. I'm, what I was wondering is, you know, I'm in my mid forties. I mean, I think about like my childhood in the eighties and stuff. I know there was a token like overweight person in school and now it seems like everyone's overweight. So I wanted to know just in the 17, 18 years you've been practicing, have you seen that people are, you know, heavier or less healthy or you know, like what physical changes in people have you seen? Not their behavior, but physical. Oh yeah. No, absolutely. You know, Colorado, Colorado traditionally is known as the the healthiest state or the skinniest state in the United States. But if we go back 30 years, Richard, I think that the, the percentage of people suffering from obesity in Colorado has gone from around 8 or 9% in the 1980s to around 25%. So it's tripled over the last roughly 30 years. Across the U.S., we know those numbers have gone from about 15 to 45%. So you know, the percentage of folks with obesity, like I say, it's tripled across the U.S. And I think that in some ways, this is death by a thousand cuts. You mentioned kids, and we know that we have, you know, just a lot more poor quality food in our environment. We know that, you know, in school kids, there's a lot less time devoted to, to physical education. Those programs get cut, or perhaps kids have two parents who are working and now they come home and they spend time online. Rather, you know, I'm not that much older than you. I'm in my 50s. But I remember when I came home from school or certainly during the summer, you know, we were outside from yeah, two o'clock or three o'clock until seven o'clock at night every day. And I think we just, you know, we don't see that so much more in our, in our youth. And this is where I say there's, there's part of a, a conversation that, you know, frankly, I'd love to be part of someday uh, if I was, you know, connected to the right people. And I know there's lots of smart people working on this to say, 
you know, how can we start to reverse some of these? How can we start to reverse some of these? Maybe answering your question, you know, I'm old enough to remember uh, I Love Lucy, right? That Lucille Ball show. And there's that classic scene where uh, she and her friend are putting chocolates. Uh, they're at the end of the conveyor belt and they're putting chocolates into boxes. You remember this? Yeah, and the boxes and their mouths, everything. Yeah, I mean, they're trying to put chocolates in boxes and this thing is going faster and faster and they they, they become overwhelmed, you know? So I think that when we look at things like diabetes or pre-diabetes, you know, people like me, clinicians, endocrinologists, we're, we're trying to help people, the chocolates coming through there and trying to help them, you know, be safely put into boxes. But, you know, there's part of our world that says, gosh, we, we, we need to turn this conveyor belt down or off so that there's not so many folks coming through. Yeah, well, agreed. Well, very good. Where can people find out more about your work? And you know, I don't know if you're doing any telehealth or they have to be local to you, but, you know, how can people find out more about, uh, again, your practice? Yeah, I, I would say two ways, Richard. So for folks who are in Colorado and want to check us out, I practice at a place called the Alpine Center. And we are at the Alpine Center, T-H-E, alpinecenter.com. And for folks who are not here in Colorado, but especially if you're somebody who has prediabetes and perhaps have had that, felt those frustration, guilt, feelings that we were talking about earlier, you just want to be able to know how you can sustain something that will work for you. We have a website. I have a website that is Dr. Topher Fox, so D-R-T-O-P-H-E-R-F-O-X.com and can pretty much link to all our free or more high-level coaching programs through that particular website. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.